President Biden will travel to Israel and Jordan tomorrow as the conflict intensifies between Israel and Hamas. It's Tuesday, October 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the president's trip comes as the U.S. says it has reached an agreement with Israeli officials on a plan to bring aid to civilians in Gaza. Also this hour, a conversation with a Hamas leader in Gaza. And the U.S. government has agreed to compensate thousands of migrant families who were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. Plus, an effort to restrict the carrying of firearms in New Mexico is facing pushback. I don't know. I don't feel I should have to fall law that would put me in danger. Criminals out on the streets, they got guns. <laughs> and, you know, why shouldn't I? Some sunshine expected later today. Highs in the 60s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is going to Israel tomorrow. The White House says he is seeking to show his support for the country as it fights Hamas militants. Israeli authorities say the attack by Hamas more than a week ago has now killed at least 1,400 people. The U.S. is urging Israel to help get relief aid into Gaza. Israel has imposed a blockade, stopping food, water and fuel from entering the Palestinian enclave. NPR's Ari Daniels report the World Health Organization says about 2,800 people in Gaza are dead because of Israel's military action. Hospitals across Gaza are providing ongoing trauma care for patients with blast injuries. But the WHO points out overcrowding and disruptions in sanitation and clean water increase the risk of disease outbreaks, not to mention patients with conditions that predate the war who need medications and treatment. Here's WHO Regional Director Dr. Ahmad Almandari speaking through an interpreter. Even in the midst of chaos and suffering brought on by conflict, all human beings have a right to health, and this right should be upheld in all circumstances and without exception. The WHO is calling for immediate access into Gaza to allow the safe passage of water and medical supplies. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Many people turned out in a Chicago suburb yesterday to mourn a six-year-old boy who was stabbed to death by his landlord. Allegedly, Wadia Al-Fayom was Palestinian-American. Prosecutors allege the landlord targeted him because of his family's Muslim faith. Mahmoud Yusuf is the boy's great uncle. He says the fighting between Israel and Hamas militants should not be reflected here in the U.S. You want war? It's overseas. It's not our war. It's not United States war. And we're gathering here to say we need to save our kids. I'm not just saying about Palestinians. I'm saying about our, our kids. The landlord is charged with murder. Former President Donald Trump campaigned in Iowa yesterday. This came as a federal judge in Washington imposed a partial gag order in his 2020 election interference case. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters has more. The gag order bars Trump from making statements targeting prosecutors, possible witnesses, and court staff. Trump tells supporters gathered at a county fairgrounds he'll fight the order. I'll be the only politician in history that runs with a gag order where I'm not allowed to criticize people. Can you imagine this? Do you believe this? I'm not allowed to criticize people, so we'll see. We'll appeal it. Trump has a more organized Iowa campaign than he did eight years ago during his first bid for the White House when he finished in second in the Iowa caucuses. And this time he sits comfortably atop Republican polls in the state. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, stock futures are lower. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Hundreds of protesters gathered in Boston last night to call on the U.S. government to cut military aid to Israel. The group marched to the Israeli consulate. Among the demonstrators was Mahmoud Elife, a Palestinian refugee and research scientist at Harvard Medical School. What brings me here today, the silence of the world, the injustice that's taking place in, in, in Palestine, where the whole world is just accepting of the killing of innocent people in Gaza. That will bring me here today. During the rally, a group of Israel supporters met in Copley to denounce Palestinian violence. Governor Maura Healy says Massachusetts will not tolerate hateful messages or threats of violence by white supremacist groups. That's after the hate group NSC-131 demonstrated outside Healy's Arlington home over the weekend. On social media, the group showed images of masked men lighting flares and chanting anti-immigrant slogans. Healy denounced the group as neo-Nazis and said they were attempting to frighten residents. No arrests were made during the brief demonstration at Healy's home Saturday night. Housing for senior citizens in New England is far more limited than in other parts of the country. That's according to a new report from the U.S. Census Bureau. Sarah Gibson has more. Only about 20 percent of New England homes are considered aging ready, meaning they have senior friendly features like a step free entryway and a bedroom and full bathroom on the entry level. That's about half the national average. Rob Dappas, the director of New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority, says New England needs more accessible housing units where seniors can downsize. There's a lot of seniors living in large houses. You know, they're sort of house rich, but Uh, limited in terms of their options to move to a place that might be easier to maintain and easier to get around. Seniors downsizing also frees up their big houses for the many young families looking to buy homes in a tight market. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. The Coast Guard says it will formally investigate the collapse of a mast on a schooner in Maine. Last week's collapse killed one person and injured three others. Officials say the incident on the Grace Bailey killed a 40-year-old doctor from Rock Maine, and they say the investigation might help improve safety. It's six minutes past seven. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. The Celtics are hosting the New York Knicks in a preseason matchup at the Garden tonight, and clouds will be in our forecast this morning, but it should change after a few isolated showers. Things will get partly sunny this afternoon. Highs will be in the 60s tonight, cloudy and breezy with lows in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro, and directed by Martin Scorsese. Only in theaters October 20th. Rated R. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. In a moment, we put questions to a spokesman for Hamas, which launched an attack on Israel. We are also covering President Biden's plan for a trip to the Middle East this week. He will land in a nation at war. Israelis are battering the Gaza Strip following that deadly Hamas attack on Israel. 
The White House says Biden wants to reaffirm U.S. solidarity with Israel and also emphasize the need to get humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza. Israel cut off food, water, and electricity to more than 2 million people. Earlier, I spoke with NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. I asked her where the president is going. President Biden will go to Tel Aviv and meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And there is a lot for them to discuss, starting with Israel's military strategy as they respond to those brutal attacks from Hamas. And that also includes plans to secure the safe return of hostages, including Americans being held by Hamas. They will also talk about what Israel needs from the U.S. in terms of military assistance. And Biden also wants to talk about the situation for civilians trapped in Gaza. Kirby was asked whether Biden might require assurances on that front in exchange for military aid. We are not putting conditions on the military assistance that we are providing to Israel. They have a right to defend themselves. They have a right to go after this terrorist threat. Um, And we're going to continue to do uh, everything we can to help them do that. Kirby did emphasize that avoiding civilian casualties remains a top U.S. priority. I know the president has been talking about establishing a corridor for humanitarian aid for a few days now. Any any signs at all that that might be happening? Yes, the administration has been pushing for this humanitarian corridor to get aid in and to help people get out, including U.S. citizens. Biden will be talking about this on his second stop in Amman, Jordan. There, he'll meet with Jordan's King Abdullah, President uh, al-Sisi of Egypt, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Egypt controls a key part of the Gaza border, but has been reluctant to open it. So Biden meeting with the Egyptian president is significant. And last night, when Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the president's trip to Tel Aviv, he had just come out of hours of meetings with Netanyahu. And Blinken said that the United States and Israel had agreed on aid to Gaza. Still a lot of details missing there. Yeah, lots uh, missing. You know, I remember back in February when President Biden Biden went to Ukraine. It was a surprise. I mean, no one knew about it. Is it unusual for the president to announce this trip considering Israel's at war? Yeah, normally when a president visits a war zone, it is done in secrecy. And as you say, when Biden went to Ukraine, he took a 10-hour train ride to get to Kiev with virtually no one in the world knowing about it until he was there. But this trip is very much out in the open. The White House says that Kiev is and was under a risk of bombardment in a way that Israel and especially Tel Aviv are not. We expect Biden will only be on the ground for a few hours, but it will be long enough for him who um, believes in the value of face-to-face meetings to have these conversations about difficult issues. Obviously, there are political benefits at home. Americans are behind the idea of showing strong support for Israel. Also, I'll note that Biden's trip to Kiev has already been featured in a campaign ad for his reelection. That's NPR's Tamara Keith. Tamara, thanks. You're welcome. Now, the many voices we're hearing from the war include a spokesman for Hamas. His name is Ghazi Hamad, and he came on the line from a location that he preferred not to specify, though he said he was in Gaza, which Hamas governs. The U.S. and the European Union label Hamas a terror group. I asked him what the group had hoped to accomplish with its surprise attack on Israel that killed many civilians. We want to get the attention of the world. Please look to the Palestinians. We are under oppression and torture and collective punishment all the time. This is our message to the world. If if I can, you certainly got the attention of the world, but these are the headlines that people are seeing. As reported on NPR now, Hamas attacked a concert 
chased young people into a bomb shelter, threw grenades in, then came in shooting and took hostages. This is one of many incidents involving this unarmed is, civilians. I 100%. This is a fake story. This is a fake story, 100%. Ghazi Ahmad repeatedly denied that Hamas ever targeted civilians, although the attackers did kill civilians, as we hear from a survivor elsewhere on today's Morning Edition. And Hamas is holding civilian hostages right now. When we asked about them, the Hamas spokesman brought up Israel's conduct. Every day, they provoke the Palestinians. Every day. And you expect the Hamas as a Palestinian to be polite and to throw flowers on the soldiers and tanks who are killing us? What do you expect from the Palestinians to do? The young people, including children who've been taken hostage, did they do this to you? Look, as I told as a human beings, as a human beings, we, even the hostages, we give him good protection, good shelter, good, uh, all they need. Well, what we they need never... is to be released. Would you release them? Okay, okay, but it is a war now. First, our priority now is to stop aggression and death on Gaza. We want to stop this. After that, we can talk about anything. But I think we have to stop in our conversation, Hamad was more concerned with Palestinian civilians to whom Israel has cut off food, water, and electricity even as its forces drop bombs. Why was this against the civilians? Because you could not reach the, the fighters, the military brigades. So you pour your anger, your frustration, your retaliation on the civilians. These people are brutal. Israel, as you know very well, called upon civilians to leave the northern section of Gaza. More than a million people were told to move. And I have a news dispatch here from the Associated Press which says the following. Hamas called the evacuation order psychological warfare aimed at breaking Palestinian solidarity and urged people to stay. Are you, in fact, urging people to remain in the war zone? We will not allow for a new Nakba for the Palestinians. Nakba, that's an Arabic word meaning catastrophe, which is what Palestinians call their mass displacement during the creation of the State of Israel. We have a first Nakba in 1948 when Israel expelled more than half million Palestinians from their villages and cities, and they built their state on the, in the skulls and the blood of Palestinians. Now we want to stay at our home. We ask our people to stay there, yes. So I'd like to know if you're also preventing people from fleeing. We want people to stay, yes. If you were telling people to stay because you think that Israel wants to take the land, are you effectively using civilians as human shields, which is a charge that Israel often makes? No, 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 never. No, 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 no. This is our, our brothers, our mothers, our sisters, our family. How can we could use them as a, as a shield? to well, you're to, telling to, them to stay. Uh, to prevent. No, no, to stay, to... to, to uh, to stand against the Israeli evacuation. Hamad repeatedly talked of a 75-year occupation, which is a reference to the existence of Israel itself. His group's goal remains erasing it. Israel is making troubles and problems and dilemma and tragedies in this region every day. They have disputes with all countries here. They could not be a good neighbor here. We want to liberate the whole, the whole Palestine. That's right, because Israel has no right to exist in this region. I want to ask about a much more limited goal, if I can. What efforts is Hamas able to make in the situation that exists today to alleviate even slightly the suffering of the Palestinian people that you govern? Look, we are, we are doing hard 
effort with different countries, with the Egyptians, with the Qatari, with the uh, Turkish, with Iranian, with different people in order to, to see how to save our people in, in Gaza. So we are working day and night, day and night. But you know that most of the countries, this world is full of hypocrisy, that they just are um, giving some sweet words and uh, some uh, good statements, but nothing is done on the ground. They let Israel to do what they want. They give Israel, especially United States, they give Israel green light, please go to Gaza, kill people, destroy homes, destroy Hamas, but Hamas will stay here. Hamas will, will continue to fight against the occupation. Ghazi Hamad, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. NPR's Greg Myrie was listening to the Hamas spokesman along with us. Greg has spent seven years covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, has covered the region for many more years than that, has spoken with many Hamas leaders. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What comments jumped out at you from, from that interview? Well, the key line for me was when he said, quote, Israel has no right to exist in this region. This has been a fundamental tenet of Hamas since the group was founded back in 1987. The group has always taken this extreme position and continues to embrace it. You know, I, I have had, as you mentioned, many conversations with Hamas leaders and members, and they tend to follow this pattern. They often begin talking about resistance to Israel and obtaining Palestinian rights. But when you press them, Hamas leaders almost always say that Israel simply shouldn't exist. And the Palestinians, of course, emphasize that the history is important here, that the attack the other day didn't come out of nowhere. And they say that Israel has taken what they view as Palestinian land. But there's also a history of Hamas. What's the group's evolution? Yeah, Steve, I think you could look at it in sort of three stages. And the, and the first was in the 90s and the early 2000s, and Hamas was a spoiler group. It was the smaller, number two Palestinian faction behind Fatah. It rejected negotiations at that time with Israel and would unleash suicide bombings, specifically targeting civilians on buses, restaurants, nightclubs, mm. really intended to undermine the peace talks at that time. And then the second stage was after 2006, when they won the Palestinian elections, and, and then they took full control of Gaza in a bloody fight with their Palestinian rivals. And, and now we appear to enter this new phase with Hamas unleashing this, this most devastating attack ever against Israel, and it bolsters their status among some Palestinians, but it, it hasn't translated into benefits for the Palestinian people in Gaza, who now face this major Israeli military operation. A little bit of context from NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks as always for your insights. Sure thing, Steve. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. Coming up on Morning Edition, we're going to take a look at Israel's military strategy. And as you can hear, the news from Israel is constantly changing. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for all the latest and for context to help you understand this moment. Keep listening. It's 19 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. 
La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Scott Tong. Documentary filmmaker Alexandra Pelosi profiles January 6th insurrectionists. Yeah, they're the people who threatened her mother, who was then the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. We need to talk to them. We need to listen to them. We need to have a conversation because we want to try to heal. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny skies expected today, although there could be isolated showers in some areas this morning. Temperatures will get into the 60s today. A few clouds tonight with lows going down into the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s. 52 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From United Airlines, committed to achieving net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 without relying on carbon offsets. Learn more at united.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Last month, New Mexico's Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham issued an emergency order for the Albuquerque area. We have far too many crimes involving firearms. We are suspending open and concealed carry. Suspending open and concealed carry. Amid criticism, she narrowed that order to cover only playgrounds and parks. Last week, a federal court allowed that rule to stand while lawsuits proceed. NPR's Martin Costi went to Albuquerque to learn what's behind the governor's order. Albuquerque is a western town, and guns are normal here. So normal, in fact, that the city runs something called Shooting Range Park. This is a public gun range specifically exempted from the governor's ban on guns and parks. And even on weekday afternoons, it can be busy here. You'll have a hard time finding supporters of the gun ban here. Johnny Atencio has his rifle and he's practicing for elk season. I don't feel I should have to fall off that would put me in danger because criminals out on the streets, they got guns. <laughs> and, you know, why shouldn't I? Gun violence has been on the rise in Albuquerque, especially over the last decade. In another park, this one with a playground, Benjamin Baker recalls an incident that he witnessed right here in July. I had my kid here at football practice, he's 12. People decided to come have a rolling gun and stabbing battle within feet of where he was practicing, and it caused a person to be shot. And the ages of those folks were 13, 14, and 15. Baker's advisor to the governor on public safety. He's also a former cop, 
and he's convinced that something has changed in the local gun culture. While he's always thought of guns as tools... I don't believe anymore that that's the opinion of a really large majority of folks. They're viewed as something different. There's something more sexy about them. It's not a tool. Police here say kids are especially attracted to guns, often stolen from cars or homes, or just borrowed from negligent parents. The state just passed a new law earlier this year making it possible to criminally prosecute adults who allow their guns to fall into the hands of kids who then use them in crimes. But that kind of gun safety law may now be harder to pass, given the anger generated by the governor's gun ban. It really kind of stacks the deck a little bit on, on other things that she may try to do because it's going to be like, well, we have zero trust. Zach Fort is with the New Mexico Shooting Sports Association. He's also a plaintiff in a lawsuit challenging the ban's constitutionality. It's going to make it harder to pass gun control in New Mexico just because just how far she tried to go through executive order and you saw so many people come out against it. Local law enforcement leaders have also distanced themselves from the ban, saying they're not about to enforce it, but they have embraced other aspects of the governor's emergency order, <laughs> such as more state money for anti-crime efforts. In a big room at the sheriff's department downtown, more than 20 officers are gearing up for the evening. All right, everybody. Thank you everybody for being here. This is day two of our Operation Clean Sweep Warrant Roundup. This warrant roundup, as they call it, means hunting down people with open criminal warrants. Sheriff John Allen says if they also find illegal guns, the state helps to pay for the overtime. This is all they're doing. They're not subject to calls for service. This is what they focus on for the evening. It's been too embedded in our community with gun violence and then felons with warrants that aren't being picked up for too long. So we're sending a message and making sure we're getting them in jail. And the governor's office is playing up this increased enforcement. It even has an online dashboard highlighting the growing population at the local jail. We can't just keep incarcerating our way out, trying to incarcerate our way out of this. It's not working. Miranda Viscoli is co-president of the group New Mexicans to Prevent Gun Violence. She'd rather see this gun emergency focusing on finding ways to change local gun culture. Such as this after-class project at Robert F. Kennedy High School where students break apart guns that Viscoli's group acquired in gun buybacks, and then they weld the guns into something new. It's like a rock star guitar. 11th grader Nathan Alvarez shows off an extremely heavy, but working guitar made from guns. This is a barrel of a shotgun, a twin barrel. We got different revolvers, pistols. The hope is that this will help to demystify an object that has come to overshadow these kids' lives. I had a friend go to a party and some guy just got mad, went to his car, grabbed his gun and just started airing it out. Alvarez and his friends can't say whether turning old guns into guitars or xylophones is going to change that reality, but they do seem to take satisfaction in the process. Martin Costi, NPR News, Albuquerque. Right, Halloween is almost here. So is Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. It's a holiday in many places, normally just after Halloween. And its symbols include a skull that appears on everything from embroidered skirts and jewelry to pillows and dishware. This is also a season when people invoke La Santa Muerte, or the Death Saint. She is the saint who never discriminates because death accepts everybody. We all end up in her bony embrace. Andrew Chesut is a professor of religious studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's written a book about the skeleton saint who is typically depicted as a bony woman wearing a robe and carrying a scythe. When the indigenous people in Mexico first see the Spanish figure of the Grim Reapers, they make that association with their own death goddess, the Aztec one who's called Mictecasihuatl, 
who's the queen of the Aztec underworld called Mictlán. Santa Muerte began gaining a big following about 20 years ago on social media, and Chestnut says controversy followed. For the past six or seven years, the Catholic Church in Mexico issues warnings not to involve Santa Muerte in their Day of the Dead commemorations because she's satanic. But some believers say she grants miracles. Leslie Hurtado is reporter for Chicago Cicero Independiente and the Southside Weekly. Similar to the Virgin Mary, many give offerings. They pray to her daily, so there's active participation. Hurtado recently covered a Santa Muerte celebration at a local grocery in Taqueria. The owner, Angelina Mendez, she is a firm devotee. And the reason for this event is that she made a promise to La Santa Muerte that if she fed the community in Little Village, if the store grew, she would honor her in a grand event. The turnout was huge. Many traveled far just to see her. They will do anything for her. It was really fascinating because there's a lack of events that honor La Santa Muerte. A figure sometimes referred to as the Virgin of the Forgotten. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the changing makeup of the United Auto Workers Union. James Beard-nominated chef Yahya Noor comes to WBUR's City Space tomorrow. He'll be there to talk about Somali food and his hit restaurant in East Boston. Tickets are available now at wbur.org slash events. It's 7.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with The Book of Life, an uplifting story of hope featuring Rwanda's first-ever women's drumming group tomorrow through October 22nd, artsemerson.org and Brown University's Executive Master of Business Administration program, rethinking the role of business as a vehicle for change. Professional.brown.edu. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is preparing to travel to Israel ahead of an expected ground assault by the Israeli military in Gaza targeting Hamas. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced Biden's visit yesterday during a visit to Tel Aviv. The president will hear from Israel how it will conduct its operations in a way that minimizes civilian casualties and enables humanitarian assistance to flow to civilians in Gaza in a way that does not benefit Hamas. Biden is also scheduled to visit Amman for talks with Jordan's King Abdullah, the president of Egypt, and the president of the Palestinian Authority. It's been two weeks since California Republican Kevin McCarthy was ousted as House Speaker. Today, lawmakers will vote on Ohio Republican Jim Jordan to replace McCarthy. Ahead of the vote, Jordan says he feels good about his chances. NPR's Susan Davis has more. He appears to be closing the gap. There's still clearly some holdouts, but the vote seems to be moving in his direction. As of Friday, 55 Republicans said in a secret ballot that they did not want to support him for speaker, but since then endorsements have been trickling in. Just one example, Ann Wagner is a Republican from Missouri. Last week, she swore that she would, quote, absolutely not support Jim Jordan for speaker. She put out a statement yesterday saying she would. That's NPR's Susan Davis. Jordan needs 217 votes to become speaker. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. As President Biden gets ready to head to Israel, Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is among some members of Congress calling for an immediate ceasefire in the Middle East. The group signed a resolution yesterday urging the Biden administration to facilitate a de-escalation in fighting in Israel and Gaza. The resolution also calls on Biden to help clear the way for humanitarian aid into Gaza. I see this plainly if we affirm that all lives have dignity and value as people of faith, we cannot stand by while civilians are indiscriminately murdered. Israel has ordered people in northern Gaza to evacuate ahead of an expected ground invasion. Hundreds of thousands of people are stuck at the border as diplomatic efforts continue to allow them to leave Gaza and to allow humanitarian aid to get through. Former Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker is set to appear before U.S. Senate lawmakers in Washington, D.C. today. Baker is now president of the NCAA. He's scheduled to testify before the Judiciary Committee on the state of college sports. Among the topics he's expected to discuss is how college athletes are compensated. Boston Medical Center will begin writing prescriptions for energy bills for some low-income patients. The so-called Clean Power Prescription Pilot Program uses solar panels mounted on one of BMC's buildings to generate energy credits. Providers would then be able to give some of those credits to help pay the utility bills for about 80 patients each month. Dr. Anna Goldman, who co-founded the program, says reliable electricity is essential to health. Maybe they are skipping medications because they can't afford it. Maybe they're not getting to follow-up appointments that they really need because they can't pay for the transportation. I mean, this is a financial subsidy that will help health from so many dimensions. The program is expected to save eligible households about $600 a year. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. We'll get a preview of the Celtics' regular season opener against the Knicks tonight. There's a preseason matchup when the Celtics host the Knicks at the Garden tonight. Cloudy skies in our forecast for this morning, but it should become partly sunny this afternoon with highs getting into the 60s today. Breezy tonight, a few clouds, lows going down into the 40s, and some sun tomorrow with highs in the 60s. 52 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone. At BetterHelp.com public. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Israeli forces are massing on the border with Gaza in preparation for what they have warned will be a ground assault. Their stated goal is to destroy Hamas on a battlefield that is one of the world's most densely populated places. So how can Israel fight Hamas without 
killing civilians? And what strategic advantages do both sides have? Jean Gentile is a senior historian at the RAND Corporation and a former army officer who did two combat tours in Iraq. Uh, Jean, so if Israeli forces make a move into Gaza, what can they expect to see from Hamas? Uh, I think, well, I mean, I think this is going to be what you're going to see is a battle for the tunnels. Um, it's hard to know exactly right now uh, how the Israelis will launch this ground invasion, whether they come at it from multiple angles into the Gaza Strip or they do it more sequentially where the initial initially focus on Gaza City uh, farther in the north. Uh, but they are going to see a a, a group of Hamas fighters uh, who are likely uh, uh, waiting for them, um, although it's hard to know how much of an effect that the uh, air campaign that the Israeli Air Force has launched, how much that's degraded their command and control uh, capabilities, logistics, and those kind of things. But I think what you're really going to see is a battle for the tunnels, um, because the tunnels, it seems to me, are... Uh, what um, uh, military theorists sometimes refer to as a center of gravity. This is a term that the Prussian uh, theorist Carl uh, von Clausewitz came up with, uh, and he defined it as the hub of all power and movement of an enemy force. And I think for, uh, for Hamas, the tunnels are key, and I think it'll be critical for the Israeli ground forces, especially once they move in, uh, to deal with uh, Hamas uh, and their use of the tunnels. How do they do that? Uh, it, it's going to be tough. Um, for example, you mentioned I did two combat tours uh, in Iraq. The second one, I commanded a cavalry squadron in West Baghdad in 2006, uh, where we fought. Uh, we were in the middle of a uh, in the Shia Sunni civil war. We also fought Shia insurgents, Sunni insurgents, but they weren't under the ground. Um, so it's going to be tough. It's they're going to have to put ground forces uh, uh, into buildings. I think, um, although they're going to try to do that, I imagine uh, by using firepower um, as best they can, and also in, as best they can to try to protect and avoid uh, civilian casualties. But there's going to be civilian casualties. Is um, the last time Israel was in Gaza was 2006? What if anything that was learned then can apply today, or if the, is that? just too much time has elapsed. Uh, yeah, so the, the last time Israel was in Gaza was uh, a little bit after that. The, the, the larger one was in uh, late 2008 and then into early 2009. Um, and that is what they referred to as Operation Cast Lead. Uh, that was a significant operation, but the number of troops uh, that the Israelis today uh, are marshalling along the borders of the Gaza Strip are much higher than what they put into Gaza in, in January of 2009. And the other uh, uh, important uh, indicator of the scale of this, of this upcoming uh, operation is the number of reservists that the Israelis have called up today, which is somewhere around 300,000. In 2009, for their Operation Cast Lead, they called up around 30,000. So that gives you a, what does that a tell sense you? of what does the that scale of uh, that this that the Israelis see this as an existential fight, I think, for their existence. I think, in their view, that um, they 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 have to defeat Hamas. Uh, it's their stated political aim to destroy Hamas, and if they don't, they see this as a potential invitation for other actors uh, in the region uh, to move on them. Um, how realistic and that's is that? Also, though? I think yeah. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Go to ahead. destroy Hamas, how realistic is that for Israel? 
Ah, I mean, I, I think they can do it. I mean, they have the will, they have the population, their own people uh, behind them. It's going to be a tough fight. Uh, I think that they can effectively destroy Hamas, but there's going to be a lot of hard fighting and a lot of destruction. And then the question then after that they defeat Hamas is then what comes next? Do they stay? Do they pull back? And that's ultimately a policy decision for the Israeli government. How far down the road do you think that would be, though? I would imagine that the Israelis are looking in terms of weeks, uh, months. Um, that's when I think you'll start to see some hard decisions confronting the Israeli government on what to do next. John Gentile is a senior historian at the Rand Corporation. Thank you very much. Thank you, A. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas promises justice and a reunification for some of the families separated at the U.S.-Mexico border during the Trump administration. A settlement between the Biden administration and lawyers for separated families will let many stay in the United States and apply for asylum. I have met with reunited families. The trauma does not end upon reunification. There is a great deal of healing needed, and we are committed to doing that which is necessary to restoring these individuals, their health and well-being. That's if a federal judge approves the settlement. Some will get jobs and housing, and we should emphasize the word some. Attorney Lee Gallant of the American Civil Liberties Union says as many as 1,000 of the children they represent have not found their families. The Trump administration did not keep records. The court said it appears that the Trump administration tracked property more diligently than they tracked the whereabouts of little children. We have been searching for years for these families. That effort spanned several countries and much of the U.S. Many children were sent to live with extended relatives or family friends. Others wound up in state supervised care. Now, former President Trump defended his administration's policy in a town hall meeting this past spring. And he did not rule out trying to bring the policy back if he should win the presidency again. If the family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family. They don't come. So I know it sounds harsh. The settlement would stop that from happening because it prohibits future family separations for eight years. Mayorkas told NPR that is a fundamental provision. When we promulgate policies, it is vital that we adhere to our country's fundamental values, and we will not deviate from that. If the settlement is followed, that means that whoever wins the presidency next year could not resume family separations. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a few moments on Morning Edition, people who lost loved ones and homes in the Hamas attacks on Israel are now reckoning with the aftermath. 
Clouds in our forecast this morning, but partly sunny skies expected later today. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Tonight it should be breezy with lows in the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with Uni Restaurant and Sashimi Bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways, ElliottHotel.com. And MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. In business news, Boston-based Estria Therapeutics is paying $320 million to license a dermatitis drug. Company officials tell the Boston Business Journal that licensing the drug is the first step in making the company known as an immunology drug maker. Astria is also known for a drug that treats a swelling disorder. Northeastern University has opened a new research center on Huntington Avenue. The EXP Center includes robotics labs and chemistry labs. Officials say the building is meant to inspire new leaders in STEM from the city. A Boston-based nonprofit that connects underserved students with career opportunities is getting a new CEO. The company tells the Boston Globe Ellen McLean will take over as head of Year Up in December. She was formerly the company's chief financial officer. It's Support for NPR comes from this station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. The strike against three big automakers is in its fifth week. Their union, the United Auto Workers, once had one and a half million members. Today, they can count barely a fourth of that number, and half aren't in the auto business. Here's NPR's Andrea Shue. On a recent Saturday, a crowd marched in the rain outside a Stellantis facility in Tapan, New York. Joining the striking auto workers were other UAW members, including... Andrea Joseph. I'm a postdoc fellow at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. A postdoc who's studying pregnancy. It's actually her second go-round as a UAW member. As a grad student at the University of Washington, she took part in a strike that led to yearly raises and better health care. Which, as a grad student, were huge for me. She's now on the bargaining committee at Mount Sinai, pushing for all that and more in a first contract. On the picket line, she found she actually had a lot to talk about with the Stellantis workers, 
And she's closely watching the strategy the UAW has deployed against the big three as she thinks about their own strike strategy, if it comes to that. We are counting on our siblings in the auto industry to come join us on the picket lines. When the UAW was founded in Detroit in 1935, the A did stand for automobile. As the union grew in size and might, that broadened to include aircraft, aerospace, and agricultural implements. These days, it might as well include academia, because roughly 100,000 of its 380,000 members work in higher education. They're clerical workers, teaching and research assistants, adjunct professors, and... Those were postdocs rallying at Columbia University the other week. From Maine to Alaska, the UAW has been busy organizing on campuses. The University of California system now has 48,000 UAW members, as many as GM. They're mostly young people infusing new energy into an old union. Which is also very cool to get to follow in that legacy. Eliana Buenrostro, a PhD student and teaching assistant in ethnic studies at UC Riverside, knows their strength in numbers. UC grad student workers went on strike last fall and won 46% raises over two years. Now she's proud that a portion of her union dues are going to the strike fund that's keeping striking auto workers afloat. It's very impactful to know that like me being a member is contributing to workers being able to exercise their rights. Beyond academia, the UAW also represents a wide array of other people, casino dealers, reproductive rights advocates, public defenders, and in downtown Detroit, workers at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, who've been on strike for more than a month. Don't get sick tonight. Blue Cross is on strike. Andrea Kirby has been with Blue Cross Blue Shield and with the UAW for 21 years. Their fight is our fight. All the workers over there trying to make a living, provide for their families. That shouldn't be a dream. For all of its expansion in other directions, the UAW is still intent on growing back the auto part of its membership. Jim Cooper, who builds Jeeps in Toledo, Ohio, is hopeful that a big win for the union now could change the minds of workers in non-union auto plants like those in the South. I think if they can look and see that the union actually got a big win, got cost of living back, enhanced 401ks or pension, I think that that would be a symbol that there's a reason for the South to unionize, or even Tesla. Personally, that's what I want. And now, maybe the union's best shot. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, Russian President Vladimir Putin's visit to China. It's 10 minutes before 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents' Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade 8. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. The Federal Aviation Administration has not had a Senate-confirmed leader in more than 18 months, at a time when the aviation system is showing signs of stress, like close calls and just not enough workers. Air traffic has come back much more rapidly than anyone was expecting. That story, plus the latest on the Israel-Gaza conflict, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden is preparing to travel to Israel and Jordan, where he'll visit with officials there tomorrow. The visit comes as the conflict intensifies between Israel and Hamas. Russian President Vladimir Putin's in China today to boost connections and celebrate the anniversary of a trade relationship. And the House is set to vote today on the nomination of Jim Jordan as Speaker of the House. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Partly sunny skies expected today after some clouds this morning. Temperatures in the 60s today. Tonight it'll be breezy with a few clouds and lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, sunshine, highs in the 60s. 52 degrees right now in Boston at 9 minutes before 8. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. The author Jumpa Lahiri considers Rome, Italy her home. And her latest story collection, which she first wrote in Italian and has now translated into English, captures what it's like to live there if, like her, you're seen as an outsider. It's called Roman Stories. The title is borrowed from Alberto Moravia, an Italian, great Italian writer, novelist, short story writer, public intellectual, man of many talents and an enormous reputation and legacy in Italy and in the world. He wrote uh, two volumes of what he called Racconti Romani, Roman stories. His stories explore lives lived largely on the margins during the economic boom of the 50s. Inspired by Moravia, Lahiri is presenting a new Rome. Some of these stories are reflecting uh, a changing Rome with recent uh, waves of, of immigration and recent changes in government, in policies, in um, sort of ongoing debates on citizenship and who becomes Italian and for what reason, and really sort of looking at the situation of children of immigrants in Rome. So all of these things were very much at the forefront of the Rome I came to live in and to discover. And it was interesting to me, having grown up as a child of immigrants in the United States, to think about, you know, a new generation in a new place and their experiences. So many of your characters in Roman stories are originally from somewhere else, or their parents are from somewhere else, people who are made to feel other. And it's a theme that runs through your work, beginning with your Pulitzer Prize-winning debut novel, The Interpreter of Maladies. How much, even in this book, Roman Stories, is drawn from your own experiences or, or searching for that in other people's? It's a continuum, as you say. I mean, I think I became a writer because I needed to um, be in dialogue with this very complex theme, if you will, of being an other or feeling uh, on the outside of something, never finding one's way into the center of things, always being questioned uh, and always questioning oneself. So I think it's both things. I mean, I always questioned who I was and where I belonged, if I belonged anywhere. The thing that struck me too is that your characters don't have names. I mean, some get descriptions, professor, caretaker, widow, others, letters, P, F. Why did you choose to do that? All of my Italian work has had this trait of, of, of not having uh, specific names associated with the characters. Names are um, identifiers, as we know, and I 
uh, wrote my first novel um, very much sort of looking at this question, this fact. What do names mean? How do names mark us? How and why do we struggle with them, uh, those of us who struggle with them. And it's all connected to the question of identity, right? Because it's the, the name is the heart of identity in some sense, sort of in the everyday world. Your name is you. And, and yet there can be so many nuances to this question and so much conflict associated with this or born from this label that you are given. But my Italian work, instinctively, I began withholding the name. And I think that the more I write in Italian, the more... It interests me because it opens up the potential reading of who the character is. And I think that the issue is, as soon as you name a character with a so-called Italian name, then it's limiting because then the reader thinks, oh, this character is Italian. I'd like to push against that and ask what constitutes being Italian. I mean, really, or what constitutes being anything. So we can also flip it and say what constitutes being American. Because of my name... Jumpa, I never felt American, okay, when I was growing up. It marked me as someone who came from, or whose family came from a very far away place. My name was not part of the language of this country and, and, and its names. And that is still the case. Um, you know, in my Italian work, um, I do feel that I'm more aligned with different approaches in literature. So, I mean, from my lifelong reading of Kafka, for example, who withholds often the name and or part of the name, you know, famously Joseph K., um, or the city of Dash, you know, so we were not given specifics. And partly that is a way, you know, writers have had also of concealing strategically identity to be able to talk about reality without pointing direct arrows. As you mentioned, Rome is at the center of every one of these stories, the new Rome, the Rome that you discovered. And I know we're speaking to you from New York, where you live part of the time, but I wonder if you think of Rome as home now as well. I think of Rome as my home, period. I think of it as my principal home. Hmm. I also have a home in New York, and I'm very fond of my home in New York. And just today I passed the hospital you know, where I gave birth to both of my children. And I was thinking about how important, you know, the city has been in my growth as a human being. And so this city, New York City, is really part of, of me and, and who I am. Mm -hmm. But having said that, you know, if I, if I had to choose, I would choose Rome because Rome is where I feel more at home. And because for me, home is always and only a state of mind. I will always be questioned wherever I go. Those questions surround me in Rome as well, but something about Rome overrides that question. And the feeling of being part of a place, it boils down to inhabiting a neighborhood, my neighborhood, for example, and the people that, who surround me there, the people I see on my walks and my day-to-day -day kind of excursions. Um, my friendships there are, are homes for me. Um, the language is a home for me. The Italian language is a is a home for me in which, yes, I, I travel through it with moments of, of, of discomfort, but not alienation. I don't feel alienation. Writer Jumpalahiri, her new book is Roman Stories. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandes, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. officials say they've reached agreement with Israeli officials on a plan to set up safe zones and get humanitarian aid into Gaza. It's Tuesday, October 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, aid groups say Gaza is near complete collapse. The U.N. says health care is especially affected. That is a enormous crisis if hospitals have to turn off life-saving equipment for the patients who are still there. Also this hour, the House expected to vote today on the nomination of Jim Jordan to be Speaker of the House. And we profile Boston visual artist Rixie. She says her large murals are inspired by her childhood in Roxbury. We didn't have access to institutional art. So I had to see the art that was in my neighborhoods, which was graph, murals, architecture, playgrounds and things like that. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden leaves this afternoon for a short trip to Israel and Jordan, arriving tomorrow. He'll meet in person with leaders. NPR's Tamara Keith reports Biden wants to hear about Israel's military strategy and its needs. Normally, when a president visits a war zone, it's done in secrecy. When Biden went to Ukraine earlier this year, he took a 10-hour train ride to get to Kyiv with virtually no one in the world knowing about it until he was there. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the situation is different. Tel Aviv isn't Kyiv. The security situation is certainly tense, of course, uh, but we take all those factors into account when we both plan the president's trip and when we make a decision to uh, to preview it. Polling shows at this moment Americans are very much in favor of showing strong support for Israel. And that support for an ally at war is a big part of Biden's agenda with this trip. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Meanwhile, Israel continues to strike at Hamas and Hezbollah targets in both Gaza and in Lebanon. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports from Jerusalem. After an intense 24 hours of continued airstrikes, the Israeli military said it had killed Osama Mazzini, a Hamas official responsible for those taken prisoner by Hamas, and who, quote, directed terrorist activities against Israel. To the north, the IDF announced that it was striking Hezbollah targets in Lebanon, and later said it had carried out strikes against what it called terror targets and infrastructure of the Hezbollah terrorist organization in Lebanon adding that it was in response to fire Monday toward Israel. The IDF chief of staff released a message to soldiers saying in part, quote, we took a hard hit and we are responsible, but now the initiative is in our hands. The war will be difficult and long, the message continued, but the IDF will prevail. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. As Israel continues bombing Gaza, the situation for Palestinians remains desperate. Palestinian health officials say the airstrikes have left nearly 2,800 people dead. 
Israel is blocking all water, food, and fuel from entering the Palestinian enclave. Relief groups in other countries say the situation is catastrophic. People in hospitals cannot get medical aid. There is fear of disease as people drink dirty water. The U.S. is pushing Israel to allow relief aid to enter Gaza. There may be a vote later today in the House to select a new speaker. Republicans have the majority, and Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan won a GOP leadership contest last week. But he did not have near unanimity of GOP support. New York Congressman Mark Molinaro says Jordan has won his backing. He's assured me that members like me and uh, the people I represent will have uh, a voice at the table, and uh, uh, he uh, understands that we need to govern, and for that I'll be voting for him. But it's not clear if Jordan has enough support. If all members are voting, Jordan can only afford to lose a few Republicans in order to win the Speaker's gavel. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators in Boston are calling on the U.S. to end support for Israel's military. Hundreds of people gathered on the steps of the Boston Public Library yesterday before marching to the Israeli consulate. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. When people are occupied, resistance is justified. Nine days after members of Hamas stormed into Israel, which then declared its mission to destroy the group, a mass of Palestinians and supporters came to Copley Square with stories of suffering and resistance. Organizer Leah Kayali told the crowd, this is a moment that will define history. The people of the global majority know that Palestinians deserve to live in freedom and dignity. Millions of people around the world have taken to the streets. Protesters called for the U.S. to halt military aid to Israel. Meanwhile, a small group of Israel supporters met in Copley to discuss their own ties to the region and denounce Palestinian violence. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Harvard officials are reiterating their outrage over the Hamas attacks on Israel after a foundation cut financial ties with the university, citing the way Harvard's responded to the conflict. The Wexner Foundation says it's ending its financial relationship with Harvard because of the university's response to the Hamas attacks. It says Harvard did not take an unequivocal stand against the attacks and did not release a statement condemning condemning the violence until days later. The foundation donated more than $2 million to Harvard in 2021, according to the Boston Globe. Much of the money went to a fellowship program at Harvard's Kennedy School for Public Service Professionals from Israel. The Cambridge city manager says the city takes all workplace complaints seriously, including those against the mayor. That's after a Boston Globe report quoted women who formerly worked with Mayor Shumbul Siddiqui, alleging that the mayor created created a toxic work environment. Eight former staff members, most of them anonymous, said Siddiqui bullied and retaliated against them. Siddiqui became the first Muslim elected to lead a major Massachusetts city in 2020 and is considered a champion for some progressive causes. She is up for re-election this November, competing with more than a dozen candidates. There's a new temporary head of the state's Cannabis Control Commission. The group's head of human resources, Deborah Hilton Creek, will lead the body while the commission's executive director is on parental leave. The former chair of the commission, Shannon O'Brien, was abruptly suspended last month, and she's fighting that suspension in court. It's seven minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet. 
for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. Should be partly sunny today. A few isolated showers before it gets sunny. Temperatures today in the 60s. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s. 53 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. On the road in Tiberi, an Israeli community about three miles from Gaza, I see a backhoe picking up bodies. They're the bodies of Hamas gunmen who stormed this community of just over a thousand people last Saturday. So we're walking into the kibbutz now and I see a burned out vehicle, the gate burned, and chickens. This vehicle was caught on camera. They came, they shot out the windows of the vehicle, assassinated the people inside, Mm. and then they blew open the door here, the gate. They came right in. That's Major Daron Spielman, a spokesperson for the Israeli army. He's taking media through Beirut on this day to give the world a glimpse of what happened once Hamas militants crossed the border from Gaza into Israel undetected, storming communities, entering homes, killing at least 1,400 people and taking at least 150 hostages. So when we walked in, it looked like a very sort of manicured community with small houses and now utter destruction. Homes are burned. Terracotta roofs lay in shambles on the floor. There's just these gaping holes in the side of the house. Inside one, there are portraits of the family who once lived there. Blood is spattered on the wall, on the front step, and in the bedrooms. Oh, it smells horrible in here. I walk into another house. There are two children's rooms filled with books, stuffed animals, and paint supplies. And the mattress is covered with blood. It's eerily quiet. The residents who lived here were killed or evacuated. A few blocks down, I find the abandoned home of one of those evacuees. The front door is burned but closed. The grass has patches of black from where it was burned, and it's the back of the house that's totally destroyed. As I walk the grounds, I call down Alam. That day, he was at his parents' home visiting. Can you tell me what happened, what I'm looking at? Because I see such destruction in front of me. Uh, Saturday morning, they just started shooting missiles. We wasn't scared because we were used to it. Then we started hearing like guns shooting. They said, everyone, they go to the safe room now and lock the doors. So we just been locked there. No electricity, no water for like 15 hours. Wait, nobody came to help you for 15 hours? Yeah, and they were inside our house. The terrorists, they were screaming and shouting. There was guns shooting all around and trying to open up the door. We just held it stronger. We didn't let them. We started to hear the house burning. We were calling for help. And we talked with our brother. He said, yeah, we're on our way, we're on our way. And they didn't came. So what I'm looking at, all of this, like your walls are black, that's because somebody set them on fire? Uh, yes. When he finally emerged from the safe room with his family, the scene was unlike anything he'd seen before. It was like an apocalypse, like everything ruined, like with bodies lay around, 
You saw the bodies everywhere? I'll, I'll try not to, but yeah. How many people did you lose uh, in your community? I think it's more than 100. Like the house in front of us, close friend. The father has been murdered for sure. The two biggest children and the mother. I, I, I just don't feel anything anymore, but it's like devastating. I'm sorry. I'm looking yes. at your neighborhood and I, I can't imagine. So you survived this. Yes, not a lot of our neighborhood survived. Has your community been able to bury their lost loved ones? Not yet. Really? Why? Because we're just still trying to figure it out how we're going to deal with so much funerals and we don't know where to bury them because it's not safe. They can't return home right now. And the 23-year-old is particularly worried about two friends, siblings. He was their camp counselor. One is 16, the other 13. He thinks they may have been taken hostage. I don't want to say their names because we, we don't know for sure, like, where are they? Who do you blame for this? I'm just not there at the moment. I'm just grieving for my, my friend, my, my parents' friends, my, like, my community. So I just don't know like how to deal with it, but we just know we like we just been slaughtered and nobody came to help us. And I don't know whose whose fault it is, but just know like we've been slaughtered. I'm so sorry. Yes, I hope like that they will save all the ones who've been taken by the Hamas to Gaza. Just I'm asking them for just think about them and trying to get them back. I mean, how do you feel about the war? I mean, I know you have friends that might be in there. Yes, I'm worried about them. And after they will be home, I don't care what happened with Gaza, I really don't. You don't care? I don't care. Shoot them all, I don't care. Hmm. I don't care. That right there is a sentiment I've heard repeatedly from grieving, traumatized Israelis. Shoot them all. Eliminate Gaza, erase it. And off in the distance, where plumes of black smoke are rising out of Gaza, Israel is retaliating hard. Israel's government has vowed to take out Hamas and is expanding its military campaign in Gaza just a few miles away, where at least 2,700 people have been killed. More than 800 are children. It's under siege. Civilians are trapped inside. Neighborhood blocks are reduced to rubble. And access to the devastation in Gaza is harder to recount with so few journalists inside. The borders are sealed. It's not the kind of response Noe Katzman wants, even though they, like Don Alam, have lost so much. Their brother was killed in the attack in a different community. When I return from Berry, I meet them in a cafe in Jerusalem before the start of the Jewish morning ritual. Um, it's tough days. I'm in, uh, we're sitting here, Shiva, you know, it's seven days after the funeral yeah. in Judaism, where you sit and you, like, everyone comes and shares our condolences. Their brother's name? Chaim, which means life in Hebrew. Beautiful. Yes. Chaim Katzman was one of 30 Americans killed in the attack. When Hamas gunmen stormed into the community, he hid in a safe room in his home in Cholit, about a mile from the Gaza border, with his neighbor and her two children. And uh, the terrorists came and they bombed the door. Chaim was hiding in the closet when they shot him. 
and finally um, like at 2 a.m. or something they found his body and then they called me and told me. In life, Chaim Katzman was a peace activist. If your brother were alive, what would he want to happen in his name? If he had a say in what would happen in the reaction to his killing? Um, I'm sure he would say that we should never kill innocent people. I'm sure he would have called them to stop. I mean, I just don't understand who this helps. It just helps the government maybe to, that the people will think they do something, but it doesn't help the people. <laughs> I mean, does it make me feel better that so many Palestinians are killed in Gaza? No. Who do you blame for what happened to your brother? I don't blame anyone, but um, I do have expectations from my country, and my basic expectation from my government is to give security and safety to all of the people, and uh, they for sure fail for that. And my government, instead of saying, okay, we failed, maybe we need to do something else, they're saying, oh, we need to kill more Palestinians, we need to... Now we're going to really destroy the Hamas. Like, like <laughs> I'm just 27, and I remember them saying it so many times. So, of course there's a revenge and a good feeling, they killed us, we killed them. But what about our safety? I mean, my brother isn't safe for sure. And why do you feel like it's important to talk about this publicly? Well, I just believe that the majority of people in Israel and Palestine um, lose from this situation. What does it mean winning now after my brother and a thousand people are dead? We want safety. There's a very small amount of people that earn from this situation. If it's uh, right-wing politicians who gain uh, power from violence and hate. When you say you want something different, you want safety, what would that look like? When you think about the reaction you wish happened, for your brother? Well, my brother wrote that he, in his doctorate that he wants justice and security for everyone who lives between the Jordan and the sea. Managing the conflict doesn't work. Every time there's a different terror attack, that's what happens when you manage a conflict. I'm sorry to tell you. And you need basic understanding of how people feel. And if after they kill us a thousand people, we're going to kill them three thousand, that's not understanding of people because these people will grow up and hate us even more. As Katzman speaks in this open-air cafe, people begin to stare. I'm a little afraid people are looking at me and I'm afraid they uh, didn't play good Then the waitress walks up to our table. What, what is this interview for? Oh, interview for NPR. Okay. Is it like pro-Israel? It's pro-life and my brother died on Saturday. And he was a peace activist and I'm talking in his name. That's, that's a problem. Israelis only care if something is pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. It's a symbolic. We don't care about the safety of our lives. We don't care about people who are getting killed in thousands. We only care if it's pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. Who cares? All of this question is a distraction if it's pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. People die. People die from both sides. Is that that we're going to kill 3,000 Palestinians, so that's pro-Israel now? No, of course not. See, Noy Katzman tells me, violence emboldens extremism in their society and among Palestinians. It's a cycle that needs to break. They say goodbye and they head home to mourn with their family. This is NPR News. 
And you're listening on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, aid groups in the Gaza Strip are warning that the enclave is near complete collapse and basic humanitarian aid cannot get through. The news from Israel continues to change quickly. Stay with us here at 90.9 WBUR for all the latest and all the context that you need to understand this moment. It's 19 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. The Federal Aviation Administration has not had a Senate-confirmed leader in more than 18 months, at a time when the aviation system is showing signs of stress, like close calls and just not enough workers. Air traffic has come back much more rapidly than anyone was expecting. That story, plus the latest on the Israel-Gaza conflict, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny skies expected today with highs in the 60s, breezy tonight, lows in the 40s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. And each day this week here on 90.9 WBUR, you can meet some of Boston's brightest new artists. They include painters and musicians as well as dancers and poets. We're featuring these creators as part of WBUR's The Makers series every day this week. Thanks for listening. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Doubleday, publisher of The Exchange by John Grisham. The hero of The Firm returns in a new sequel. The Exchange After The Firm is available now in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including hunger relief organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And Amy Martinez. Russian President Vladimir Putin arrived in Beijing today. He's there to help China mark the 10th anniversary of its Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative. But there's probably a lot more going on behind this visit than just that. NPR's John Ruich is on the line from Beijing now. So, John, uh, what's this trip really all about? Yeah, A, there's a lot of layers to it, but at the heart is geopolitics, right? You know, we've seen China and Russia draw closer in recent years and find common cause in pushing back against the U.S., against the West, with an alternative vision, really, for global order and governance um, that has room in it and has respect in it for countries that don't necessarily have a Western-style liberal democratic values. I talked about this visit with Una Alexandra Berzina Chernenkova. She's a China and foreign policy expert at Riga Stratens University in Latvia. Maybe the logic here on the Chinese side is that having Vladimir Putin stand shoulder to shoulder with Xi Jinping helps China to secure its position and its role in those regions that have grievances over the Western system. 
Yeah, and despite the war in Ukraine, despite the International Criminal Court issuing an arrest warrant in March for Putin that's linked to that war, you know, these guys are making it clear that they stand by one another. I saw Putin get off the plane. He was all smiles uh, when he uh, disembarked. Uh, what should we expect when they all meet? Well, more of that, smiles and warmth. Um, also, there may be some economic deals that emerge out of this. You know, Russia has become more isolated because of the Ukraine war. China has been a big lifeline. Russia has become more dependent on China. And trade between the two has been taking off. And by the way, the heads of Russia's biggest oil and gas companies are in town also. For China, the economics are important, too. You know, the Chinese economy has been a bit sluggish, and foreign investors, particularly Western investors, are nervous about the economy, about the direction of policy. But officially, this is about the Belt and Road, and that's about symbolism. Yeah, they're making a big deal about uh, Belt and Road, but that's not something we've heard a lot about recently, though. Yeah, that's right. You know, after it was created in 2013, there was this initial burst for a few years of investment and energy. That's really tailed off in recent years. In part, that's because China's economy is slow. There was the pandemic. Uh, but it's important. You know, China's ruling Communist Party wrote the Belt and Road Initiative into its constitution a few years ago. It's very much part of Xi Jinping's drive to grow influence, to make more allies in the developing world. And he needs them as, you know, relations with the West sour. So not only will Putin be here, there's going to be dozens of leaders from elsewhere, too. Viktor Orban of Hungary is in town and even representatives from the Taliban, which China and no other country formally recognize as the government of Afghanistan are going to be here. All right, so all this is happening right in the middle of what's happening between Israel and Hamas. Uh, is that going to come up? I expect it will come up. China and Russia have both, uh, you know, they have complicated relationships with both Israel and, Pal and the Palestinians. But neither has condemned Hamas. Both have avoided the appearance of siding with Israel. They've expressed solidarity with the Palestinians. You know, their position stands in stark contrast to that of the United States, for instance, and much of the Western world. China said it wants to work with Russia also to re-energize this idea of the two-state solution. And so, again, you know, there may be the hope that this issue also can build credibility and clout with others around the world who may feel the same as China and Russia on this. The thing to watch is going to be whether or not, you know, participants at this Belt and Road Forum, which are quite diverse, can get on board with it. That's NPR's John Ruich in Beijing. Thanks, John. Thank you. Hundreds of mourners filled an Illinois mosque yesterday for the funeral of a six-year-old Palestinian-American, Wadia Al-Fayoumi. Law enforcement officials allege that a 71-year-old man killed the boy and wounded his mother because of their Palestinian background and Muslim faith and his own views of the Israeli-Hamas war. Illinois State Representative Abdel Nasser Rashid is also Palestinian-American and was at the funeral. He's on the line. Good morning, sir. Uh, good morning, Steve. What was the funeral like? Oh, it was heartbreaking. Um, you know, my, my heart has been heavy for the last 10 days, and, and now we find ourselves mourning a six-year-old Palestinian boy killed right here in Plainfield, Illinois, stabbed 26 times, and the military-style knife um, that he was stabbed with was retrieved from his abdomen, during the autopsy. Um, it's just, it's been heartbreaking. And unfortunately, he's a casualty of the politicians and, and many in the media cheering on Israel's march toward genocide. That's created an environment of hate right here in America. Uh, of course, the man also attacked the boy's mother. How's she doing so far as you know? Um, she's she's uh, in critical condition is my understanding. Um, okay. I, I, hope she, I hope she recovers. I pray for her full recovery. Um, you 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 bl you blame just now uh, broader climate of the way that people are talking about the Israel Hamas conflict. L let's try to talk through what you would you would like to hear. This is clearly a conflict that raises a lot of emotions. 
there clearly was a horrific attack by Hamas that is part of the story here. How would you like people to talk, your fellow citizens, to talk about this or not talk about this? Right. Well, the killing of civilians should always, always be condemned. And we mourn the tragic loss of life, whether it's Palestinians or Israelis who are being killed. We all want and deserve to live in peace and safety. And that requires that we address the root cause of the problem. And pretending that this conflict started on Saturday, October 7, doesn't help us understand that, that um, the only way, the only way to forge a path forward is to, is to address the fact that Israel has had a decades-long occupation that's denied Palestinians basic human rights and freedom. And if we want to save Palestinians and Israelis, um, we have to address the, the fact that there, are, that there is this um, horrific occupation. Right. I want, to bring this, I want to bring this thought home to the United States. Are you feeling, in spite of this incident uh, involving this individual, are you feeling support from the wider community or any part of it? Oh, I'm, I've been really heartened from messages I've received from so many, of course, from my own constituents here in Illinois and from so many people. Um, um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, it's, um, you know, the U.S. government has um, fueled Israel's march toward genocide. And we saw that 1.1 million Palestinians were um, ordered out of their homes overnight with literally nowhere to go. Um, and the U.S., instead of calling for de-escalation and ceasefire, is, is sending Israel more military funding. Um, that, is not, that is not a helpful response. Okay, much to debate here, and we are hearing many voices on this topic and, and many views of the, the things you just expressed. Illinois State Representative Abdel Nasser Rashid, thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Today's top stories are just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we profile Boston visual artist Rixie. She paints large murals that she says are inspired by her childhood in Roxbury. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Swan Galleries with African-American art at auction Thursday, October 19th with works by Alma Thomas, Norman Lewis, Sam Gilliam, and contemporary artists Simone Lee, Samuel Levi Jones, Carrie Mae Weems, and others. Information on the Swan Galleries app or swangalleries.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is expected in Tel Aviv tomorrow, where he's likely to reaffirm U.S. support for Israel as the Israeli military prepares for an expected ground assault targeting Hamas in Gaza. The president is due to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu before heading to Amman for talks with Jordan's King Abdullah, Egypt's president, and the president of the Palestinian Authority. Israelis are being evacuated from a town on the Lebanese border after missile fire left civilians wounded there. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. 
Israel says anti-tank missile fire from Lebanon hit the Israeli border town of Metula, causing injuries. Civilians are being evacuated from Israeli towns along the Lebanese border where Israeli troops have been deployed. Israeli media claimed Hezbollah in Lebanon was responsible. Israel's army is warning Lebanon not to enter the ongoing Hamas-Israel war. Israel estimates around 600,000 Palestinians, more than half of Gaza's population, followed Israel's evacuation orders and fled to southern Gaza. And in southern Gaza, Israel bombed new targets, causing large casualties. The U.S. announced Israel will allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. The territory is facing a dire shortage of electricity, food, water, medicine, and fuel. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Officials in Amherst are considering how to distribute reparations to black residents. Amherst was one of the first towns in the country to establish a reparations fund. The town expects to grow the fund to about $2 million, mainly through cannabis sales tax revenue. Some proposals for the fund include creating affordable housing and developing more business grants and youth programming. It could still be some time before licensed cannabis cafes are open for business in Massachusetts. But members of the state's Cannabis Control Commission have been looking into how the cafes might operate if and when they do open. Jill Kaufman reports. Commissioners Bruce Stebbins and Nuris Camargo said they've been traveling to other states where customers are already consuming marijuana in licensed cafes. They've been learning about state and local public safety and health regulations. And Camargo says about what makes a lucrative business model. I've heard more folks throughout the country tell us that they have to create engagements within their locations so that people can use the lounges. In places where there's heavy tourist traffic, like in San Francisco, the lounge space works because there's a lot of traffic. Regulators also talked about how other states measure if customers are too high to drive and about how to train cafe staff to cut people off. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering a plan to extend paid caregiver benefits to spouses. State law provides reimbursement to some of those caring for family members such as children and grandparents. Lawmakers say the new proposal would broaden eligibility for paid family caregiving. A previous version of the bill was held for study in the last legislative session. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. The Celtics face off against the Knicks in a preseason matchup at the Garden tonight, and it should be partly sunny today. Maybe some isolated showers this morning. Temperatures getting into the 60s today. A few clouds tonight with lows in the 40s and partly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the low 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Aid groups in Gaza are warning that the enclave is near complete collapse. Hundreds of thousands of people need food, water, and medicine at a minimum. Many people have fled their homes, and hospitals say they will soon be unable to care for people. NPR's Peter Kenyon joins us from Jerusalem. Peter, so let's start with what's happening with getting that aid into Gaza. Well, that is, of course, a huge issue, uh, getting humanitarian aid from Egypt through the Rafah border crossing to the Gaza Strip. Trucks have headed from the Sinai toward the crossing, loaded with aid to replenish the rapidly dwindling supplies in Gaza. But there are reports this morning that Israeli forces bombed the Rafah crossing again. Uh, There had been some questions about who was holding up this aid delivery. This morning's strike makes clear who at least one of the parties is. There have been intense diplomatic efforts on this front, as we heard and those are expected to continue. One Israeli concern, according to some reports, is that all the aid trucks have to be searched for fear they might be carrying weapons into the Gaza Strip. Other reports say that could be one issue. It's not clear if that's the only one. Uh, Aid workers are warning that time is running out before a huge humanitarian crisis unfolds in Gaza. They say people are drinking unsafe water and virtually everything they need is in short supply. Okay, so that's the aid. What about the war itself? Well, the Israeli military, the IDF, says its forces killed Osama Mazini, who Israel says was a key official responsible for prisoners taken by Hamas and also, quote, directed terrorist activities against Israel. On a more general level, the IDF says it's been launching strikes both in the Gaza Strip and against Hezbollah targets and infrastructure in Lebanon in response to Hezbollah fire targeting Israel. Now, on the Palestinian side, the Ministry of Health continues to report on dead and wounded from the Israeli strikes. The latest report says dozens were killed, dozens more wounded by strikes at the Rafah crossing and at Han Yunus. Also, it reports some 1,200 uh, reports of people trapped under the rubble of homes hit by airstrikes. The ministry says, quote, we hope that some of them are still alive. Any word from uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Uh, Well, yes, he was uh, addressing lawmakers yesterday in the Knesset, told them he was issuing a warning to Hamas and particularly Hezbollah in Lebanon. He said, quote, don't test us in the north. Don't make the mistake of the past. Uh, That's a reference to the 2006 conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. Today, Netanyahu warned the price you will pay will be far heavier. Uh, He was then interrupted by air raid sirens and had to leave for a shelter along with Knesset members. Iran is believed to be a prime benefactor to both Hamas and Hezbollah. What have they said? Well, of course, the rhetoric from Iranian officials has been steadily escalating. Just today, Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is quoted as saying, those living in Israeli settlements in occupied Palestine are not civilians, he said. Uh, He said they're mostly armed. Uh, He also called for Israeli officials to be, quote, tried for their crimes. Separately, Iran's foreign minister is warning that, quote, Preemptive action is possible if Israel does appear to be launching a ground operation. It's not clear what that preemptive action would be constituted of. Iran has been seen for years as a main benefactor of both Hamas and Hezbollah. Tehran says it's supplying funds, not weapons, but there's little doubt that's what most of the money is used for. And, of course, the ability of Hamas and Hezbollah, both groups, to receive caches of weapons uh, has long been a point of great frustration for both Israel and the West. That's NPR's Peter Canyon in Jerusalem. Thanks for sorting this out, Peter. Thanks, eh? And for more coverage and for differing views and analysis of the conflict between Israel and Hamas, go to npr.org slash updates.
Back in Washington, the House is on track to vote later today to possibly elect a new speaker. The Republican nominee is now Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, who is popular with the Republican Party base for his inflammatory rhetoric, and he has Donald Trump's endorsement. Here he is yesterday talking with reporters. I feel real good about the momentum we have, and I think we're, we're real close, so the vote's going to be tomorrow. Although he needs 217 votes to prevail, and it's unclear that he can lock down that majority since only Republicans would vote for him. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis joins us now. Sue, if uh, all members are present and voting later today, Jim Jordan will need 217 votes to become speaker. So how close is he to getting those votes? He appears to be closing the gap. There's still clearly some holdouts, but the vote seems to be moving in his direction. As of Friday, 55 Republicans had said in a secret ballot that they did not want to support him for speaker, but since then endorsements have been trickling in. Just one example, Ann Wagner is a Republican from Missouri. Last week, she swore that she would, quote, absolutely not support Jim Jordan for speaker. She put out a statement yesterday saying she would, in fact, support Jim Jordan for speaker. <laughs> uh, but the math is still really tight. He can only lose four Republican votes and still get the gavel. Uh, even Jordan's closest allies conceded going into the likely vote today that it could take multiple ballots to get him there. So what are the main holdups then among Republicans about having Jim Jordan as their speaker. A lot of the resistance comes from appropriators and defense hawks. Appropriators, of course, are the ones that write the annual 12 spending bills. They're worried about a shutdown, and Jordan has a history of opposing the very spending bills that you need to pass in order to avoid doing that. He's also always been sort of indifferent to spending cuts, and that makes defense hawks get a little nervous. He's also been skeptical of Ukraine aid, which is a big priority for uh, those lawmakers in particular. The aid has been delayed getting through the House because of conservative opposition from people like Jim Jordan. And there's a lot of frustration among defense hawks because a lot of the Ukraine aid money is actually money that would be spent here in the U.S. It goes to defense manufacturers to replenish uh, U.S. weapon systems because the U.S. is donating a lot of its old weapons and equipment over to Ukraine. And as far as Democrats go, how in line will they be on a boat today? Democrats also met last week. They unanimously agreed uh, that their their leader, Hakeem Jeffries of New York, would be their nominee, and they are all expected to vote for him on the floor. So no Democratic support expected today. Okay. It's uh, been two weeks, uh, two weeks without a speaker, no legislation, nothing can move through the House until there is a speaker. If he is elected today, what would Jim Jordan's first order of business be? Well, the Hamas attack on Israel has obviously scrambled the legislative agenda. Uh, there at the top of the list would be Israel-related items. There's a resolution condemning Hamas for the attack that both chambers would like to pass relatively quickly. The question of whether he would allow Israel aid to be linked to Ukraine aid is a question that Jim Jordan has not answered, even though he's been asked it repeatedly, although he is publicly saying that he would support moving fast on Israel aid and would like to keep those two issues separate. And of course, A, you've heard this before, uh, there's a government shutdown deadline looming. The current stopgap runs through November 17th. None of the annual 12 spending bills have been approved yet. So Jim Jordan is going to have to very quickly go from being the lawmaker that tends to oppose spending bills to being a lead negotiator in in finding consensus to pass bipartisan spending bills to keep the government open. That's NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Susan, thanks. You're welcome.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on the Marketplace Morning Report, some of the recommended steps that organizations and managers can take to help create more racially inclusive workplaces. Should be partly sunny today with highs in the 60s, breezy tonight, lows in the 40s, and sunshine tomorrow with temperatures in the low 60s. It's 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at renewalbyandersoncares.com. And Johnson & Wales University, bringing a hands-on learning approach online. From computer science to psychology, JWU has flexible and convenient online options. In business news, a Waltham-based investor is launching a new fund to help support restaurant technology and innovation. Founder John Davey tells the Boston Business Journal the so-called Emerging Fund will also provide mentorship and connections for people getting started in the industry. Flight Club, Putt Shack, and F1 Arcade are among businesses already in the fund's portfolio. U.S. postal officials are agreeing to reopen the Alston Post Office on Harvard Avenue. The original building closed in 2019 because of structural issues. City leaders say the post office would open in a new building at the site, which will also include some housing units. The second location of a North Shore-based restaurant is now closed. Owners of Maggie's Other Farm say they decided to shut down their Bell Ricker restaurant this weekend. They say it was too far away from their operating base on the North Shore. The restaurant was open for less than a year. It's 8.45. The air is crisp. The cider donuts are hot. It's fall in New England. If you're like me, you might be wondering where to go leaf peeping. Here's a tip from our field guide to Boston. There are some relatively easy trails for new hikers or families close to the city, like Blue Hills or Middlesex Fells reservations. But be aware, you might run into a crowd of neighbors also trying to take in the fall colors. If you want something more challenging with less crowds, lace up your hiking boots and head up Caribou Mountain in Maine or Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire. And remember, by the time trees in Boston are changing color, trees further north may already be shedding their leaves. To get more tips like this about navigating the seasons in Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Visual artist Rixie grew up looking at Boston's murals and graffiti. Today, her own work as a muralist is in demand. She paints characters from a fictional and inclusive world she created. And she's one of 10 local artists of color that we're profiling this week. WBUR's Ariel Gray met with Rixie to discuss what it means to create spaces for marginalized communities. Rixie stands and looks up at her mural, Palante, on Highland Street in Roxbury. In it, a brown-skinned woman stands front and center, tattooed thighs peeking out from behind the slits of a blue dress. A pointed-eared brown dog crouches behind her, both a protector and companion. Then, a car drives past, blasting music. You see, like, stuff like that, like, if I don't hear the reggaeton coming down the street, then how am I going to know that this is for me, you know? 
The 28-year-old grew up on the street and says the area is being gentrified and people of color are being pushed out. It's why she felt it was the perfect place for Palante, which means moving forward in Spanish. I think after COVID and all the BLM movements, it made me want to be a social practitioner versus like creating work for myself or for like the women in my family and my friends. At this point, I was like, oh, I want to make this for many people. For Rixie, murals are more than just images splashed on walls. They imbue neighborhoods with a sense of belonging, especially for residents of color. In fact, it was murals and graffiti, not museums or galleries, that exposed Rixie to the world of art. Like cultural murals, I think were the biggest things of art that I remember as a kid. And as well as like being poor, like we didn't have access to institutional art. So I had to see the art that was in my neighborhoods, which was graph, murals, architecture, playgrounds, and things like that. As she developed her artistic practice, she upped the scale of her work, creating large murals that center individuals with voluptuous bodies. You know, I didn't grow up femme. I grew up very tomboy, very rugged. I think the more that I started doing work around femme, it was me also exploring myself and trying to understand what it meant to be a woman without all that stereotypical labeling and language. During this time, Rixie conceptualized Kukula, a bright, fluorescent, alternate reality where things like machismo and misogyny are the exception, not the rule. Kukula is, a, is like a word used in some Spanish songs, kind of like, eff it, eureka, wow, like it's this like euphoric adjective. But I think about it as like an inclusive space where like the women are like, a lot of the warriors there, they're the, the builders, they're the makers. Rixie uses public art to create a landscape where people of color, especially women of color, are able to identify with characters who look like them. I want the work to feel like you're allowed to go as far as you want, be as big as you want, be as big of a woman as you want to be, as loud, as voluptuous, whatever you want. Since Palante was completed last year, Rixie has continued to create work in the realm of Kukula, with recent murals going up in Field Corner and in Lawrence. Kate Gilbert, the executive director of Now and There, a public art organization, says Rixie's work and the world of Kukula help redefine how public art impacts local communities. So many of our, our civil liberties are under attack, right? What Rixie's work does to put up you know, images of fictional characters that are part of the Kukula reminds us, I think, of progress. Rixie plans on continuing to explore the landscape of Kukula and wants to incorporate other mediums like sculpture and 3D forms of art. But I think Kukula has been like the grounding of my social practice and to think about community and to think about how we as like community organizers and artists, especially in Boston, we have to be activists here. You know, we have to be like social pushers. As she continues to grow, Rixie hopes to create more spaces, both real and imaginary, where people of color can see themselves as the protagonists of their own epic stories. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. To see photos of Rixie's murals, visit WBUR.org. Tomorrow morning, listen for our story about Arsene Fahim, a gifted pianist who made it to the U.S. just before Afghanistan fell to the Taliban two years ago.
in just about 10 minutes here on WBUR. It's the BBC News Hour, where we'll have the latest on the conflict in Israel and what to expect during President Biden's visit there tomorrow. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org. The Federal Aviation Administration has not had a Senate-confirmed leader in more than 18 months, at a time when the aviation system is showing signs of stress, like close calls and just not enough workers. Air traffic has come back much more rapidly than anyone was expecting. That story, plus the latest on the Israel-Gaza conflict, on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here are some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Israeli airstrikes killed dozens of people in southern Gaza today. While efforts continue to try to get humanitarian aid there, President Biden visits Israel and Jordan tomorrow amid concerns that the Israel-Hamas conflict will expand in the region. And the U.S. government has reached a settlement with families separated at the border during the Trump administration. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. Retirement in the USA. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. Each year, the retirement and investment services company Mercer puts out rankings for retirement systems in various countries. The latest one is out, and the U.S. is not at the top. We actually rank somewhere in the middle, alongside France, Spain, a couple other countries. Who is at the top, you ask? Well, that would be the Netherlands. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. Mercer based its rankings on three major factors. The amount of benefits future retirees are likely to receive, the solvency of retirement systems, and whether they are regulated in a way that maintains public confidence. By those standards, the Netherlands was at the top, scoring an A grade alongside Iceland, Denmark, and Israel. The U.S. got a C plus. Mercer says the country can raise its rating by undertaking reforms, such as boosting the minimum pension for low-income retirees and limiting access to savings prior to retirement. Mercer suggests countries encourage people to work a little longer to account for longer life expectancies and to figure out how to incorporate gig workers into their retirement systems. A bigger problem in the U.S. is that most Americans don't have anywhere near enough saved if they have private retirement accounts at all. Vanguard and the Census Bureau report that median account balances in IRAs and 401ks is just around $30,000. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up two-tenths of a percent. uh, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down in the three to six-tenths percent range, with Dow futures down 90 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.807 percent, highest in more than a decade. 
The extent of remote work has been sliding, according to census data. As of early October, just shy of 26% of U.S. households had someone working remote at least some of the week. For reference, the peak, according to Bloomberg, was 37% back in 2021. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. There are several arenas in the workplace where racism can be perpetuated, unwittingly or not. Recruiting and hiring, for example. And despite a heightened focus on racial inequality in the workplace over the past several years, progress has, at best, been mixed. So, what steps can organizations, colleagues, managers take to help create more racially inclusive workplaces? Aria Harvey Wingfield is a professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. Her new book out today is called Gray Areas, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It. My Marketplace colleague David Brancaccio spoke with Professor Wingfield about what it takes to create more inclusive places of work. It's your view that there are a lot of systems at play in the workplace that are not formal, but they are powerful and often problematic. You call them gray areas. What are some? Yes, exactly. So when I talk about the gray areas at work, I'm talking about the things that are a little bit separate from the core aspects of the job that people are hired to do and more about the social, cultural and relational parts of work. Like just how you find out about work or how you advance may not have to do with everybody gets a performance review twice a year, may have a lot to do with some of these informal processes. Sure, exactly. So, for example, you mentioned hiring. If we think about how people find out about jobs, we have this model, I think, that you apply and the best person for a job is chosen. But we also know from research that people are much more likely to get jobs if they are referred by someone and that most people find jobs through those who are in their social networks or their existing connections. But we also know that connections and networks are highly racialized in the extent that they're pretty racially homogenous. So already black workers are starting out at a bit of a disadvantage when they have to rely on their connections and networks, which may not be very racially diverse in order to get access to jobs in the first place. When people endure racism at work from individuals or systems, this doesn't just hit a person's work life or their career. It hits a person beyond where they work. Yeah, one of the narratives that I found really affecting and moving in doing the research for this book is from a person that I call Amalia in the book. And Amalia is a journalist. And her experience is interesting because she worked in an environment where the culture was one where they at least would acknowledge and talk about the reality of racial disparities and discrimination. And even that is pretty unusual. Many companies take the opposite tack and suggest that that's something that shouldn't be addressed to the detriment of many black workers. But for Amalia, being in this space where colleagues would at least acknowledge this reality, but did not necessarily address or acknowledge or seem aware of the particular toll that getting racist hate mail took on her as a black woman. It really had some mental health consequences for her. And it was really personally affecting for me to listen to and write about how that had such an impact on the way that she lived her life just as someone trying to do her job and do her best work. Mm. I mean, you write that you've gotten racist emails, really hateful stuff from trolls Yet, in some cases, you didn't go to your colleagues to draw them into this. You just said you didn't have the energy to to walk them through what their reactions were. 
Yeah, and I was a little uncertain about including that in the book initially, but as I thought about it more, it seemed to really tie to what a lot of my respondents were talking about. So for me, when those types of things have happened, especially when I started here at WashU, I was in a new job with new coworkers, and I thought, this is just not really the start that I want to get off to. I don't want to have these conversations. I don't really know my coworkers. I'm not 100% sure of the nuances of the response that I'm gonna get. And quite frankly, I don't really feel like doing the emotional management of trying to sympathize with them. But I think for many black workers, having to deal with that in isolation speaks to the way that organizational culture, another area that I write about in the book, just really often is not structured in a way that reflects the reality of the diverse workplaces that many organizations say that they want to create and achieve. Adia Harvey-Wingfield is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Her newest book is called Gray Areas, How the Way We Work Perpetuates Racism and What We Can Do to Fix It. She's also the president-elect of the American Sociological Association. Professor, thanks for this. Thank you. This was so fun. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio there. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshaw with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. And this is 90.9 WBUR. It should become partly sunny later today. Temperatures getting into the 60s. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the 40s. And sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the 60s. 52 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Stay with us for the BBC, which is up in just a couple of minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC and MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.